Welcome to the Impossible Healthcare Podcast, where we talk to the experts about pressing topics in healthcare. I'm Samir Barry, and I'm Mike Albert, and we are both doctors at Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles. Welcome back to another episode of Impossible Healthcare. Really excited to have Neil Kosal on the podcast today. He has a master's in computer science from Stanford. Um, where he focused on artificial intelligence. He was a machine learning researcher there at Stanford as well as at Google. Um, He has gone on to found two companies um, that both are leveraging machine learning, Um, one of them Totemic and the other one Curai. And I'm really excited about Curai and what what they're working on there, trying to help scale primary healthcare um, and bring it to the masses uh, through the smartphone. So he was a lot of fun to have on the podcast, Samir. Yeah, it's the beginning uh, of another series we're doing on startups in healthcare. And Neil Kosla discusses with us the unique challenges of working with different players in the healthcare industry. So we break it down by providers, payers, investors, and even patients, and really look into how startup founders should be thinking about these different players in order to bring their ideas to the masses to improve outcomes in healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I really loved his uh, his insight that he offered and, and how he discussed at the end of the day, convenience wins out. And I think we're seeing a lot of that with um, the explosive growth of both telehealth more recently, but in the last 20 years with urgent cares. And so uh, he has a lot of tremendous, tremendous insight to offer. And, and it was a really fun podcast. Let's jump in. So Neil, thanks for joining us on another episode of Impossible Healthcare. Um, I wanted to start by saying, um, you know, in many ways, this has been a great time to be working in healthcare as, you know, most of us are aligned in acknowledging the problems and the need to fix these problems. But people have been trying to figure this out for more than a decade, and it seems to be there. there's one failure after another. You know, why hasn't healthcare technology improved outcomes, you know, at a pace that we've seen in many other industries? I mean, do you have a specific take on that? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. Um, That's obviously a a, a very dense question with a lot of (laughs) bits and pieces. Um, I do think that the technology has really struggled in healthcare. It's worth noting, you know, if you, if you walked into a a hospital 50 years ago uh, versus today, you know, the vast majority of that hasn't changed. And as technologists, we have to view that at some level as our failure. And part of it is, I mean, if you go back and look at even the the beginning stages of the internet, there was very little focus on healthcare. Some of the kind of companies we saw in the earliest days, like the WebMDs of the world, were very simple, simple, you know, take on, you know, trying to change healthcare. What we saw pretty soon after that was after a lot of the low-hanging fruit on the web was taken up, that people started thinking about healthcare. And this was when we saw that kind of the V1 and the first generation of health tech-focused efforts. And a lot of these things kind of had the mentality of if we build it, they will come. Um, and uh, you know, maybe my favorite example of this is something like Google Health, which you know, Google, bless their souls, uh, really had no idea what they were doing and decided it would be great if we could 
as Google does, aggregate all of the data um, and use it to our advantage. Uh, but it turned out nobody in healthcare wanted this to work and users didn't even really want this because they didn't have a reason to aggregate their health records. Um, and so that whole generation of digital health efforts was effectively a bust. Um, and it wasn't until people in the tech industry started learning from that, that they started to, to realize, oh, I got to learn a little bit about the industry that I'm trying to change sure. uh, before I try and change it. And particularly in healthcare, I mean, yes. So one of the questions I always get from folks who are looking at healthcare is about regulation. And, you know, the thing that I tell them is actually regulation is almost never uh, a challenge for us. I mean, yes, it, it, it makes things harder, but there's a lot of ways to work around and work with regulators and regulation to achieve what you're trying to achieve. That's not true 100% of the time, and there's certainly some things I'd like to be changed, but this is just an example of the better you understand. It's not rocket science. You just have to take the time to understand it, and that just didn't happen in the first generation of companies. And you know, the other obvious thing that everybody talks about is financial incentives and how people get paid. You know, the most shocking thing to most people who don't work in healthcare is that providers don't get paid based on better outcomes and more efficient, more efficient care. Everything uh, happens on volume in healthcare, as, as you too know. Um, and so these kinds of things just weren't baked into the first generation of tech companies. When the second generation came out, it was folks who had tried to learn a little bit. And what we've seen there has been smarter, more targeted approaches. The challenge that I've seen is that it's healthcare is such a big beast. Uh, it's sort of like this Gordian knot and you, you don't know where to start pulling that people have tried to carve out really small kind of neat niches to address the problem. And, you know, going back to my initial point, we haven't seen the vast majority of the way healthcare actually operates change. Uh, even where we've seen some economic and, and on some level, some patient-based success in, in driving change um, and some progress, there's nothing transformative. And this was the point of the blog post I wrote uh, a couple months ago. Uh, you know, my observation is these, these companies um, have, we can get a little bit into that, but they've, they've done well uh, for themselves but they haven't driven the kind of transformative changes. It just goes back to the same thing. Like the healthcare system looks the same to most people as it would have 50 or 60 years ago, which is crazy to think about. It might be the only industry in the world. So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, Michael and I have been providing direct clinical care, you know, more than 50 hours a week as our full-time job for the last five to six years. You know, some would argue is that period where there's been a lot of interest policy change and, and entrance from tech players into into the healthcare industry. And I haven't noticed any change whatsoever with regards to direct patient care. You know, there's a lot of things on the back end, maybe there's a lot, you know, small incremental improvements, but Michael and I work in two different states, two different healthcare systems. Care is usually pretty much delivered the same way. You know, you talk about the challenges of of implementing these new technologically driven transformations in healthcare. And you mentioned a few of the players that provide some challenges, providers, payers, um, patients, policy that you mentioned, um, and investors. It's kind of these different people involved in the industry that you have to get buy-in from as a startup in order to succeed. 
Um, and I think, you know, maybe we should dive into some of those, those different uh, participants. You know, you've talked about the challenges for startups in working with providers. And one of the ones that you've mentioned time and time again um, is not only that fee-for-service or, or volume-based payments, like you mentioned, as one of the hindrances, but also just operating margins. You know, everyone's talking about value-based payments, but not a lot of people are mentioning the operating margins of provider systems um, and how that impacts entrepreneurs' ability to affect change. Yeah, uh, I think this is one of the points that's not talked about enough. I mean, health systems are generally very small margin businesses. And when you've got low margins, it's very hard to take risk. Um, and, you know, one of the things I point out is you can look up a list every six months, you can look up a list of the the health systems that have shut down in the last six months. I, the one that always struck me as just jarring was, I think it was last year when Hahnemann shut down in Philadelphia. Yep. Yeah. And here you've got this you know, what is it? A 500 bed. It's basically a skyscraper in downtown mm -hmm. Philadelphia. And it's this giant hospital. And one day they just shut down. I mean, it's mind blowing uh, that this could happen. And, you know, it seems like it was a game of chicken between private financing options, you know, the state and the, the health system itself, but nothing came to fruition. They had to shut down and all of a sudden, you know, you talk to other people in the area, <laughs> they're evacuating the beds. They're trying to figure out how to f get people into other health hospitals so they can get care. I mean, the fact that this kind of thing happens in 2019 is absolutely insane. Uh, and just because Hahnemann was losing, I don't know, I forget the number. They were losing X million dollars every, maybe every month. I mean, it was some insane, I wish I had the details in front of me, but if you go look it up, it's one of these insane stories where you just can't believe that a big health system with a downtown Philadelphia skyscraper just shut down. And it, it just speaks to the challenges. I mean, running a hospital is really, really hard. The margins are razor thin. You've got all these complex business factors that go in your equation. Being a, you know, being the CEO of a health system or being a hospital operator, it's not fun. You know, you've got to balance the percentage of patients you have who are, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, because you don't get paid well enough to actually make money off them, which nobody talks about in this country, uh, that your commercial insurance has to subsidize this. And, you know, if you don't have the right mix, you're kind of screwed. And you know, meanwhile, people are telling you, you know, you're not doing enough to innovate and you're not you know, you're not making change and you're not making progress. And of course there's just massive consolidation and roll up. So all of this is just, I'm trying to paint the picture of you've got these businesses that are just really hard and frankly not enviable in any way. And then you're coming to them and saying like, Hey, we want you to change your one part of your workflow. And we're going to try and put this new piece of technology in your, in your hospital. And the, the honest reaction for most folks, not all, the most is I've got so many bigger problems. I mean, the story that I, I love uh, was, I forget where it was, uh, a friend of mine who works at a, at a major health system was telling me, uh, you know, they had a situation where there a bunch of the, the doctors were pushing for a new piece of software they wanted to help improve clinical quality and workflow, all this great stuff. And the IT department in the hospital was looking at uh, was looking at their budget for the year, and 
they eventually decided, hey, we don't have the budget for it because we need to replace all the barcodes on you know, the, the DME or the, the, the medical equipment and the wheelchairs and all this. And so they said, you're going to have to, they turned around to the doctors and said, you're going to have to wait 12 months before we buy this piece of software. Wow. Like that's a crazy story. I mean, can you imagine a tech company going to <laughs> their engineers and saying like, Hey, we can't get you access to this software you need. And not only that, we're, we can't get you access to it because we need new desk chairs. You know, I, I think that just when you're in these really tough businesses with really low margins, it's easy to forget how hard it is to try and drive new things. And I have a lot of respect for some of the folks across healthcare who have made some of these choices, despite it being hard, despite it in many cases costing them money because they think it's the important thing to do. Um, it's a great example of that is Steve Clasco at TJU in Philadelphia. And I've gotten to know those folks a little bit and, you know, TJU runs a telemedicine service and, and they, they've really invested in making themselves a place where technology can come into the, come into play. Um, despite it not always being the, the, the most economic choice for them. You know, Neil, one other aspect of the provider cons- you know, equation and consideration is that clinicians, uh, by our very nature, are risk averse because, you know, we take the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm is kind of one of our tenets we live by and practice by. And having patients' lives at stake, you know, is a real consideration we have to make when we adopt new technologies that could potentially influence a patient's health. Um, And this provides a lot of challenges with uh, new adoption or buy-in from the uh, provider standpoint. Do you think this poses a fundamental um, barrier for change or, you know, how do you get buy-in from the providers or help or, you know, help institute changes to uh, support a change in this culture so that technology can have a greater impact on the way we practice and provide care? Uh, My one word answer to your question is yes. Um, I think risk aversion in healthcare, and we just talked about it with regards to business model. I mean, that's really what I said in in many more words was people are scared to take risk with their business model for the most part because you have small margins and you don't want to take risk because you'll go out of business. Like that's, that's the bottom line. And it's true of how, of our care models and everything else. And it's hard to know where to point the finger. You know, the Hippocratic oath is one of these things that it makes a tremendous amount of sense, right? If you put yourself in the patient's shoes and you say, hey, look, this doctor did something, it killed my family member, I I want recourse. Of course, you know, in that moment, you're going to be very upset. But on a macro, it's sort of a tragedy of the commons because on a macro level, what it does is it stops us from, from making real progress. I mean, the most kind of maybe dramatic example of this would be how we run clinical trials. Obviously, if we had more tolerance to test experimental things on the individual basis, we would, you know, we would sacrifice a lot, but on a on a population level basis, we would gain a lot. Now, for better or for worse, we've made a choice as a society to focus on the individual, but we're starting to reap what we sow in terms of uh, you know, the challenges um for the population as a whole, I think what I see from having been around providers a lot in the last few years is that they really do want to do 
the right thing. But, and most of them, you know, nobody signs up to be a provider for anything really other than noble causes. I mean, no, the job description's pretty crappy, if I may be frank. It's like, I'm going to go to seven plus years of school and take on a bunch of debt so that I can get paid well, but not like out of this world well, and work long hours and constantly be under stress. And But, you know, that's what it is. You do it because you care and you want to make an impact on people's lives. Um, the, the challenge I've seen, you know, there's a couple of things is there are providers that I've worked with who I think have a much healthier relationship with risk. Well, I'll say, you know, you can't think of risk as one big class of, uh, of all the same things in terms of healthcare, right? So when you're dealing with a patient in the ICU, we have a very different perspective of risk than we're dealing with a patient in inpatient versus outpatient versus primary care. Um, you know, and I think it's really important. I wish medical schools taught a little bit more uh, probability theory um, because it would be very helpful for, for providers to understand, uh, you know, ideas like conditional probability. So, and there's some intuition behind this. So the clinical trials example is being a, the best one. Like if you, it's much easier to be experimental with a condition like ALS than it is to be with a condition like diabetes. Like if we had some diabetes drug that had a 50% chance, we like, let's just say thought experiment, we had a 50% chance of running a clinical trial that could develop a, you know, a therapeutic that could solve diabetes. Probably. I know that's, there's a lot Sounds to unpack great. there, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but there's also a 50% chance that it kills every patient in the trial. There's no way this trial would go through. Even if it would kill 1%, it wouldn't go through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, if we take a step back and I said, you know, you know, if you look at the math, and this is going to sound not empathetic at all, but if I say if it's a 10,000-person trial and the expected value is 5,000 lives, uh, how, many you know, how many lives are we expected to lose because of diabetes every year? Well, it's a lot, lot more than that it's the challenge of balancing individual risk versus population benefit, which has always been this conundrum in healthcare. And I, and I would totally argue or, or agree with you rather that people who are involved in healthcare, they're, they're in it for the right reasons. They're working really hard, but we've developed this system that's made it absolutely impossible for them to deliver value to patients. Just yeah, the, that's the, exactly right. Right. So it's, it's absolutely impossible for you to take a group of very intelligent, very hardworking very dedicated providers, and you've put them in this system that just makes every single step of the way almost impossible. We're talking about patients here and, and how we can balance this risk of population benefit to individual benefit. Do you see this as one of the fundamental challenges for startups entering healthcare? If people are going to have some risk involved embracing these new delivery models, right? Are, are patients going to be willing to innovate and be risky with their own healthcare? If there's some new app or new service that says, hey, you know, don't go to the hospital when you have chest pain, just video ch chat us or, or tap this button on your app and, and get an EKG and it's just as good. Do you think people will be willing to accept that sort of fundamental change? I think there's a lot of providers and people in healthcare who are going to disagree with what I just, what I'm about to say. But I, I think that patients have shown time and time again, not just patients, but people have shown that convenience and experience and cost went out 
with just about everything. I mean, the reality is, is my best example of this in healthcare is the counter. Uh, why don't people take their medications consistently? Why don't people eat healthy? Why don't people uh, exercise? You know, the thought experiment I always tell people is like, what if I told you I had a pill that I could give you, you take once a day, it will increase your life expectancy probably by a decade or more. It will make you smarter. It will give you more energy. It will reduce your risk for every chronic disease. Um, it will make you happier. And the only caveat to this pill is it takes about 20 minutes to take and you got to <laughs> take it really slowly and it's really painful. Would you take it? Do you think you could sell that pharmaceutical? And the, you know, everybody says, yeah, I think I could sell that. And the answer is no, you can't. It's called exercise. Everybody can get it for free. And why? Because <laughs> patients like convenience and experience. Yep. Um, that's great. And, and so, <laughs> You know, I, I, I think there is a little bit of paternalism. There's a little bit of like, you know, just stuck in the ways of thinking with providers and folks in healthcare. It's not just providers. Um, yes, these are challenges. But if you look at the history of the Internet, uh, and this is not my idea, you know, I was listening to uh uh, Brian Chesky speak, uh, one of the founders at Airbnb, and he said, when we founded Airbnb, uh, you know, people have this crazy response. It's like, what? You're going to let someone into your home? And they were like, well, if you look at the history of the internet, this is how things have progressed. In 1996, it was, you know, why you're going to talk to someone online. And then it was, you're going to buy something from someone online. What if it doesn't show up? And then it was like, you're going to put pictures of yourself online. You're going to date someone online. You're going to make friends <laughs> online. These were, I mean, if you think back to the early days, like this is exactly, people were like, you're crazy. How could you ever trust that? The quality's lower. How are you going to choose someone to marry? That's the most personal thing from somebody you meet online. Uh, and then it was like, you're going to get in a car with someone, some stranger that you met online. What if he stabs you? And then the Airbnb <laughs> thing, you're going to let someone into your bedroom online. So the internet has shown, you know, that over time people will trust new things. Now, that doesn't mean there's not an onus on us to main, maintain quality or to build trust. And so Airbnb has a great example of how you build products that cultivate trust. I think it was something like when they added photos of the, of the hosts, I think they saw something like a 33% increase in bookings. Why? Because it just created, it facilitated trust. It created a sense of who's behind this. Um, and so these are some of the things that, yeah, there's challenges and you have to facilitate trust and you have to deliver a high quality product. But if I look 20 years in the future, I mean, frankly, if, um, if we are not in a world where a significant percentage of our care, especially outpatient care is being delivered virtually, um, although there are some people, by the way, looking at inpatient care virtually, which is a pretty interesting thing, um, if we're not at that place, we've got large problems. It's sad. I uh, I had an interaction as a patient in the healthcare system for a musculoskeletal injury, and you don't really understand how horrible the experience is until you're in their shoes. And you know, I'm somebody who has access. I have a network here. I'm in the healthcare business. I know everyone there. And even though, even still, it was it was such a difficult experience. Every step of the way, there's problems. There's there's gaps. The, the experience is absolutely horrendous. So I totally agree that a customer first approach may be, you know, one of the solutions to getting buy-in from patients here. But I, I also appreciate the fact that you're noticing that that humanistic component is something that we have to figure out how to 
not lose. And that example of Airbnb is a good one, but who is willing to integrate with it and, 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 and experience healthcare virtually and who's not, right? I think that some some of the younger patients like you and I and Michael, you know, we may be more likely to, to engage in this sort of delivery care platform. But some of the older people like our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation, you know, just like Amazon and Facebook and Airbnb, they were kind of most likely to be late adopters. But in this situation, they're the people who need care even more. Is that something that you're thinking about how to engage the elderly population that have more chronic disease that may be less likely to integrate with or, or interact with a, a new sort of care delivery model compared to a younger population is relatively healthier? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think this is a challenge that a lot of people bring up with telemedicine type tools broadly. Just uh, it, It's something that uh, I've spent a, a bunch of time thinking about. And, you know, I have a couple of answers to it. The first I'll say is like, you don't need to look, the healthcare pro- industry has so many large problems, but, and it's so large and it's easy to get overwhelmed and say, we can only focus on the biggest problems, but that's, that's not always how change happens, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You may solve some of these smaller problems with these early adopters and drive it. You know, my grandma's on Facebook now, right? So, (laughs) uh, and she's, you know, 87 years old and lives in India. And so it's just, yeah, you know, there's a way. Change. Yeah, there's a way to do it. It follows this classic early adopters, you know, crossing the chasm kind of curve. And it's okay to start with a population that isn't driving all the costs. You know, one of the things I will say is what is it like? 5% of the population drives half the cost in healthcare. Well, the mm-hmm. flip side of that is the other 95% drives the other half the cost. Um, and people forget about that sometimes. There's such a focus on how you drive leverage. Uh, what we've seen with the most expensive populations is what works is a more hands-on human approach. I mean, if you look at any of these alternative primary care businesses, Iora, ChenMed, et cetera, Landmark, uh, they are just very intensive care models. I mean, I hope I don't offend anyone, but my observation is that's really what they're doing. And they're taking the most expensive sick patients and giving them more care. From, and, you know, it turns out you can save costs this way, and that's great. But, uh, you know, it's actually moving healthcare in some ways in the wrong direction, which is we need less intensive, less manual care models. Uh, and so we may yeah, not How do you scale that, basically, right? It's yeah, like it's like more of a scalability issue. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I think we we just need to consider, you know, where is techn- where is the right place for technology and the tools we have today to make an impact today? You know, if I could build robotics that could help care for people in the home and have conversational AI and some of these things that may come 10, 7, 10 years down the road, um, I would be able to make more of a difference on that 1%. But, you know, if you've ever stepped into, let's say, like a memory care facility, you would know you're just not going to make a difference in a memory care facility today with better Mm -hmm. technology. It's just so damn hard. Every time somebody gets up, they need to be escorted. And, you know, there's people around all the time because falls are such a high risk because, uh, you know, people get disoriented, you know, 
most, if you haven't been in a memory care facility, I highly recommend you do. You know, they have locks on the front doors. They've got, it's, it's a really jarring world and it's hard to see where technology is going to improve that today. So I like to think about how do we, you know, get a foothold into solving problems where we can today. And then you can expand to some, some of these more complex patients and expand to patients who aren't as likely to trust the system or these new technologies. Yeah, I, I, I think the cycle is very interesting. What, one thing I want to uh, jump to now, Neil, is, is talk about one of the key stakeholders that we often forget, but is equally as important as the payer. Um, they have some unique challenges, and and you did a, a really nice job, kind of shedding light on this. You know, the whole uh, consideration about the medical loss ratio, and where you know they're not really incentivized to help control costs because as cost uh, inflates and, and grows, they will make more money because of that twenty percent. And, uh, you know, they often have challenges because they can't directly affect patient or provider behavior because they're not directly involved in care. So there are a lot of hurdles for them to be involved in kind of driving change. I'm just curious, um, you know, what's your thought and in, in approach in, uh, you know, integrating payers into solutions like digital healthcare? Sure. Um, I do want to make one note before we move on from providers. One thing I definitely wanted to talk about was one thing that I think every provider in healthcare should think about is the fact that they're in a service business. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're providing a service to a customer. And one of the most jarring things for me in healthcare has been it's the only industry, it's the only service business I've seen where the service providers think that their feelings matter. Um, mm-hmm. you know, everywhere else it's the customer is always right. And in healthcare, they just don't have that perspective. And it comes from, well, the customer doesn't know and the customer and they're right. A lot of the times, you know, I do see patients who are horribly, you know, misinformed about what is going on with them or what they need. And so I get it, but at the same time, it is a, it's a dangerous mentality to say that, Hey, our needs are as important or more important than the person we're trying to serve ultimately. Um, it's fine when it's how does it help me better serve them? But when it's how does it help me be happier and do more, that's a dangerous thing to get down. And I actually think it's it's been one of the really big challenges uh, for for working with providers and, and everything goes through providers in the healthcare system. So I would encourage providers out there to really think, you know, re- take a step back and, and think about how do I how do I prioritize the needs of my patients? And it's hard. Like I said, it's it's not a particularly fun job in a lot of ways right now. And there's a lot of downsides. So I get it. And, you know, we know all the stats about physician burnout and that. But for I was us just going to bring forward, that up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I I totally agree with what you're saying that this is 100 percent a service business. Our job is to improve the patient experience as best we can. And I would actually argue that the problem you mentioned about uh, provider mentality and attitude is getting worse. It's, I don't think it's getting better. I think 100%. more and more providers are, are starting to feel that they need more attention and more benefits and things need to be better for them, the provider. Because unfortunately, I think there's just so much work to be done in healthcare with such limited resources that everybody is getting stretched thinner and thinner and thinner. You know, at every institution where my colleagues work, they're instituting, you know, mandatory Saturday clinics, one hour extra a day of clinical work. I'm frequently 
in the evenings and on the weekends replying to patient phone calls and patient emails outside of work. So there's there's just so much more work to be done with such limited number of people that I think one of the opportunities for technology is to fix the problem where you absolutely need a physician to provide every little bit of care. That's not a sustainable model because how are we going to snap our fingers and just produce hundreds and hundreds of thousands more physicians? I think that you've also, yeah, exactly. Or not. Um, and I think one of the solutions you've come up with or spoken about is how, how do we take the requirement of a physician to be involved in every step of that care out of the equation so that we can scale it? I think we need to think of ways that we can innovate and not be required to be there every step of the way. A lot of the patients I see in clinic, they didn't need to be there physically to see me. I could have done that over phone, over email. It wastes their time. It wastes our clinical resources. But again, you know, Michael and I have been doing this for the last six years. Nothing's changed. And it's kind of frustrating to see that. Uh, no, I mean, everything you're saying is exactly right. We have to find ways to multiply our physicians. We can talk, I mean, we can talk about that a little bit when we talk about what we're doing at Curie, but it's, it's definitely a perspective that I share. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But going into the pair question that, that Michael asked, I think that is really interesting what you've written about with the medical loss ratio and things like that. So what are the challenges there from a startup perspective working with pairs? So there's a couple of kind of system or kind of, what's the best way to describe this? I, I'd say there's a couple of things at a high level make them really hard. So from an incentive basis, you know, I mentioned, or Michael mentioned this sort of 80-20 rule and, and medical loss ratio. And the idea is, it's like, you know, this is a, a part of Obamacare, which which was really well-intentioned, uh, but speaks to the, the value of incentive design and the importance of really thinking through incentive design in healthcare in particular. Um, you know, the law is effectively that insurers can keep at most 20% of the money they collect from premiums for profit and for administrative costs. And so if they want to increase their total number, so I guess the, the, to give you an example, if you're making a million dollars in premiums, that means you can only keep 200,000 for profit and administrative costs. The other 80%, the other 800,000 has to be spent on patient care. And the motivation behind this law is like, we don't want some insurance company taking home you know, a million dollars in premiums, but only spending a dollar in patient care, that's, you know, really bad. The challenge is, is that, you know, what this means is if I'm an insurer and I'm making 200,000 in, in profits every year, I, the only way to increase that profits is to make that a million dollars go up the, the revenue on premiums. And that means my incentive is to let the cost of care go up because that's tied to what my premiums can be. Uh, and so over time, there's no real incentive for insurers to keep the cost of care from, from going up. And more importantly, there, there really only is an incentive for them to, to actually allow the, the cost of care to go up while they keep that 80% number as close to 80% as possible. So that's called medical loss ratio. You know, if they are, if they're taking home, only $150,000 in profit, or then they'll want to reduce cost. Uh, but otherwise, they want the, the cost to go up. So it's this precarious balance between how do I get my medical loss ratio right, while sort of not caring about the total cost of care going up over time. Um, and so that's one of the really big challenges. The other one I'll mention, which I didn't mention in the piece that I wrote, uh, is about... Uh, 
it's about basically longitudinal value. So because for commercial insurers, patients turn on average, I believe it's every three years, any solution that doesn't have immediate returns, which would be anything that would probably drive long-term savings, uh, just gets ignored. So if I had a program that could increase compliance for exercise rates in patients by 10%, just provably, uh, I'd probably have a hard time getting that to show any return that matters to an insurance company, to a commercial insurer. And working with the government is very hard. So um, yeah, I those mean, are I the two that, things I see that is a huge challenge. That's a huge challenge because we're talking about making our population healthier, um, trying to find ways to spend money um, to, to, to get more value out of the care per, we provide. And as you mentioned, these payers aren't incentivized to structure any of their systems for the long term, right? Because the average um, insuree is only with an, a, a payer for what, four or five years. And so like you mentioned, there's no long-term thought for any of this investment. It's all about sort of the sh- optimizing the short, short-term short gains. And so, I mean, it creates really perverse incentives in a lot of way, whether it's driving costs up or mm-hmm. allowing costs to inflate and, and not investing in the long-term in your patient population. And so I think it, I mean, we're talking about really fundamental challenges moving forward and in terms of aligning sort of uh, quality and cost. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. Uh, and I think you know, there's a lot. This is why a lot of people out there push for single payer type models because it would solve some of these challenges. It would introduce a, a a whole host of other ones. And this goes back to anyone who thinks they have the solution in healthcare. It's a very complex problem. There's no one solution, and there's always trade offs. Um, you know, when you think about designing incentives. So if you look at the UK, which is you know single payer. Now you're seeing in the UK, the rise of private hospitals that are operating sort of outside of the NHS. Why? Because access and quality and cost, like all of these things are still an issue, um, but they're just an issue in a different form. Um, and so patients are now trying to find ways to, to find other options. So, it, you know, this kind of, you know, global level healthcare design or society level healthcare design, it's probably needs a lot more thought um, and getting from where we are today to, to solving those problems is going to be really hard. I don't claim to have any of the answers. I think there are some obvious things we can do. Um, you know, the, the 80-20 rule is one of these things that doesn't really make any sense to me um, in its current form, or at least it needs to be paired with, and I'd have to give more thought to this, but it needs to be paired with something that prevents somebody's got got to be responsible for putting downward pressure on the price in the system. And right. if you look in economics, the best way to do this is market forces. So introducing market forces that'll that that kind of you know if you could redesign the healthcare system from scratch, what you really want is a system where patients individually are incentivized to care about the quality, cost, and customer service of an individual doctor. And unfortunately, we're very far from that today. So there's some work to be done there. One of my, Neil, one of my biggest frustrations, and I hear kind of 
this conversation happen a lot with this talk about a public option and Medicare for all is you're like, well, we want to have uh, healthcare exist within a free market because that's, you know, it'll be driven by proper market forces. The customer gets to decide for themselves. They have choice and all these things. And I'm like, wait, 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 let's, let's hold off. The customer doesn't have a proper choice. That, that dynamic is not in play here, like in a normal free market right? The customer has no idea what, what anything costs, right? There's no tr uh, price transparency on anything at any level, yep. right? And uh, they have no idea what real value is. So how can they shop for appropriate care, determine what is really valuable when they don't know when, you know, Dr. Joe down the street is going to provide a better service than jo Dr. S. I mean, there's no way that, that we can say healthcare exists in a free market like it like other industries. And so th that whole concept to me is, I think, a little bit ridiculous um, when we talk about, you know, allowing it to exist in this free market. And that's sort of very a, a very glamorous notion. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, there is some work being done to push things in that direction, like David Goldhill at uh, Sesame Care, who's trying to add price transparency to different specialty services. And I think models like that make a tremendous amount of sense, um, even if they have challenges to getting them up and running. You know, personally, I think this is why a primary care physician has such a big role to play um, in the system is that you're right. Like a patient doesn't know what kind of specialist they need to see. They don't know how to evaluate necessarily the, the quality of a specialist, but this is what your primary care physician is supposed to do. They're supposed to provide integrative care and help you understand these trade-offs. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so there is a potential to work towards this kind of model. It's just uh, we, we don't have it right now. And, you know, 50% of Americans don't see a primary care physician regularly. So, so that's definitely a challenge too. Um, and cost and, is only one part of the equation, right? I mean, even of course. if, even if free market forces were totally in place in healthcare and we were competing adequately and we were taking out all the, the malaligned incentives right now, we by and large don't really measure healthcare outcomes. So we can't even begin to argue how we could compete on outcomes. Most healthcare systems have no idea how well they do in most care delivery processes. They're not measuring outcomes and they're not measuring them in the same way. They're, they're measuring certain quality metrics. For example, there was a big push to measure whether providers were asking patients if they were considering not smoking. You know, that, that's not a great quality outcome. You got to measure, are they smoking? And so you know, cost is one part of the equation. Quality is another part. I would argue people are working on the cost part, measuring outcomes part, not so much. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I do want to be careful. I, I don't think you always look there. You're going to whenever this is true of technology development, too, as any product designer or, or product manager or engineer will tell you any metric you pick is going to be flawed. You'll never have the perfect metric. And so we can't let perfect be the enemy of good here. Um, and, but I agree, you're right. It's not measured at any level in most cases. I mean, look, you go, I go see a specialist. I had, I've had chronic back pain for a couple of years now. I went and saw a specialist at Stanford here and I left. Uh, he gave me a prescription for or a referral for physical therapy. I went for a few months. He has no idea if I got better. He just doesn't know. Uh, I could have gone to a different doctor. I could be still in pain and have no uh, and have no treatment I'm seeking, which is what's happening. Or I could be fine. Um, and 
this is true generally of healthcare everywhere, especially for these kinds of outpatient care. But even in inpatient care, I mean, I've spent time in, in, in the hospital too. You know, you don't know what happens unless someone comes back. Um, and so it, it's a huge challenge, but I think some baseline answers would be helpful. We've seen some good stuff, uh, you know, obviously with, uh, with some of the efforts around keeping people from being readmitted to hospitals, there's been some work been done. And this has actually been a success story for cert- for technology in some ways in terms of allowing patients to, you know, send data to uh, back to the providers that they saw to make sure they don't get readmitted. Um, and that's a good example of measuring outcomes in, in a minor way. It's not perfect, but these are the kinds of baby steps we have to take. Definitely. I think one of the only areas in medicine that I'm aware of where we systematically universally measure outcomes and we importantly measure them the same way across different health institutions is in organ transplantation. So UNOS requires that we measure, you know, six month survival, one year survival, long term survival, number of admissions related to transplantation. So I think that's a great example of where more national body can can implement policy change to measure outcomes. But it's a whole nother podcast episode. I mean, Neil, one of the one of the last players in the healthcare system that I think is largely ignored in terms of challenges from a startup perspective at affecting change is investors. And you've written about the challenges of working with venture capital firms that don't want to take risks the right way with healthcare. Um, and frankly, they're probably just easier ways to make money. Could you talk a little bit about that uh, compared to the provider and payer problem? Yeah. You know, my observation is that there's two classes of investors. There's people who tend to know healthcare very well, and they like very linear, predictable business models that fit into healthcare. So they say, you know, what CPT codes do you fall under? You know, what what you know? Are you a Medicare Advantage business? Are you, um, you know, how are you getting paid? They really just want to know an answer to this question, and you know, the challenges there is that it's very limiting, right? Uh, we can get into it on the policy side as well. But, you know, one of the things, if you look at something like a CPT code, it's CPT codes are basically completely incompatible with technology. The challenge there is that, uh, you know, if you look at something like anything that would be a technology API, there's just no way to have it uh, be reimbursed under CPT code. There's a little bit of stuff under remote patient monitoring, for example. But if you look at those CPT codes, most of them require physician review. And so these are just the examples of where, you know, the the established business models in healthcare are really hard for driving any kind of material change. I, you know, I've been talking about and proposing this idea that CPT codes should sometimes function more like APIs. You know, you get paid 20 cents to, you know, automatically screen somebody's data or two cents, um, as opposed to you get paid $65 to do a 30 minute review of, you know, for remote patient monitoring. I think that's what it is. Um, and you know, you could set limits. It can only be done once a month or whatever, but it's just so far from from what how the business model works. And so you could never get an investor to invest in this. You couldn't get an investor to invest in this on the basis of we're going to lobby for change. And you couldn't get an investor to invest on this based on 
you know, we're, we're trying to propose some new business model and some new way of interacting with the system. And there's sort of this chicken and the egg problem in healthcare of like, do you solve the patient problem or the, the, the care problem versus do you solve the economic problem? What's the economic model? And, you know, if we go back to where we started this episode, V1 of the companies where we're going to solve the patient problem or the, the user problem, and we don't give a damn about the economic problem model. You know, now we're seeing people err much more towards we're going to solve a well-defined economic model because we don't want to get burned. But the challenge there is that we know the economic models behind healthcare are just broken. So you're never going to improve. And, you know, I think there's a reasonable argument that almost every business that has started uh, in health, not all, but I'll say a large majority of them are just inflationary in some way. They found a way. I like this analogy. There's this big uh, there's this big sort of pipe of dollars flowing through the healthcare system. And most of these startups have found a way to siphon off a few pennies and cents from that pipe of, you know, large bills of cash flowing through it. Um, and so we, you know, because the vast majority of the system is still operating under this model that just doesn't work. And so, it, you know, what I see with investors is that, if you compare their investment opportunities, the other end of the spectrum for investors rather than these traditional investors is investors who are more traditional technology investors. And there are alternatives, their opportunity cost for every healthcare investment is an enterprise SaaS play. And SaaS is like the best business model to invest in in the history of the world. It is so predictable and markets love predictability. It is really well understood. The execution of the business is understood. You know, it is, it's a great place to invest. And when you compare that to, hey, we're going to look at a healthcare company that to, hasn't solved the economic problem, it, the risks just don't line up. And you know they're going to err on the side of the SaaS companies nine times out of 10. And that just means we don't have enough efforts that are really saying, how, how do we try and change these things? How do we try and play differently in... The healthcare markets, and every once in a while, you'll get something like this movement towards self-insured employers, which ended up working. But you know, if I tried to raise selling to employers in healthcare ten years ago, no shot that would have been funded. It, it would have been very hard because there was no proof points. Definitely, I think now that companies like Omada and Lavongo have kind of laid the path forward with regards to that. But you said something great about SaaS being such a predictable business and really loved by investors. A lot of the startups that I've worked with, they're trying to please investors by having this predictable revenue model. But then when they go to providers or pairs, they want to be paid based on outcomes, based on how well you do, which is by default going to vary up and down. So there's a fine balance, unfortunately, of you know working, taking on risk, working on capitation, yeah. but then trying to please your investors by having a SaaS-based model. It's kind of catch-22 there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. What about solutions now? You know, we've kind of we've kind of gone over problems from, you know, the payer perspective, the provider perspective, the patient perspective, the investor perspective. So these are all the different challenges for startups these days in trying to apply technology to healthcare. You've written about the solutions or examples rather of when change happened very quickly with regards to technology and healthcare, one of them being the High Tech Act. Could you talk about how policy can be one of the levers for quick change? Yeah, uh, policy. I mean, the healthcare 
industry is huge. And so anytime the government comes around and says, we're going to reimburse this differently, or we're going to change this payment model or whatever it is, even when they say there's different compliance requirements, there's huge economic opportunities. You know, I was talking to, to someone who runs a large, large business that effectively all they do is they respond to freedom of information requests for hospitals. Uh, what, uh, what does this mean? This means when a payer or a patient makes a request to a health system, I want my records, they have to respond legally. You know, they have to be able to give the, the medical justification for the, for the billing and they have to give patients their data. But no provider system has the infrastructure to do this. Uh, but it's legally required. And so there's a business opportunity there. There's a huge business opportunity there, just helping people get their records out of these archaic EMRs. And so I think in Silicon Valley, we probably don't pay enough attention to where these opportunities pop up. Um, this is why Silicon Valley basically missed Epic and Cerner. I actually think the interesting thing, I mean, if you're an investor, you're looking at what I like the you know the question you got to be asking as a venture investor is what has to go right, and if you're at a time where you think there's a a ten percent pro- probability of a of a massive policy shift that would create a big opportunity, it might make make sense to get out in front of that and start a business and be well positioned to capitalize on it before that change happens. It's a scary thing because you have exogenous risks that aren't based off your own execution. But, you know, venture capital is a form of educated gambling. Um, And so I I do think, you know, looking at policy and understanding how to drive change and then pushing on levers to actually lobby for change that can help technology getting uh, uh, adopted would be huge. I mean, the, I mentioned the one thing with uh, with sort of AP, API-like CPT codes, it would be game-changing. Um, any kind of movement toward value-based care could help a lot of technology efforts. Um, and, you know, the Tech Act was the example that I don't know that anyone in Silicon Valley was lobbying for it, but you can imagine a world in which, you know, Silicon Valley companies were the big epics and cerners of the world and we'd probably be a lot better off frankly given what we've seen from those two neil one of the less value-based opportunities that have arisen over the last decade or so and this is primarily on the side of the provider you know we've talked about their risk aversion because of their operating margins etc is sort of this idea about or this fear about some type of existential threat that will consume their patient base and they'll lose out on revenue that way. And one of the thing, one of the cases for this that I think best describes it is the, the uh, story of both Proton Therapy as well as the DaVinci robot. These were at the time like the sexy new treatment or technology that had hit the, their respective uh, segment within healthcare. And and so, the, you know, all these major health systems became early adopters because they're like, oh, we get to market this. This will be like the greatest new treatment ever. And lo and behold, years later, we, we have all this data that really proton therapy has really limited use and doesn't really dramatically change outcomes in cancer treatment. And oh, by the way, the DaVinci robot really doesn't change outcomes and in some ways maybe worsens outcomes in certain surgeries. But, you know, regardless, all of these diff- different players were, were marketing and selling and purchasing this technology that really had no value at the time or hadn't proven that it can really change outcomes. But that was a way that really drove um, 
change in terms of technology uh, implementation. And I, I just think, you know, it's it's funny because we talk about the risk aversion and and uh, and and providers being unable to to quickly adopt. But those were cases where they almost went the other way. They were ver- almost too quickly to adopt. And then I think that's I'm just curious what your take is on that. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've written a little bit about this as well. I, I think, you know, I call these existential threats. Uh, I think this is the number one driver for change in healthcare. And we, besides policy, which you can't control, uh, I think, or you can, but you don't have a tremendous amount of control over. Existential threats are such a great way. Why? Because, you know, if you're, as we talked about, a small margin corporation, uh, you are going to resist change until you see something that can put you out of business. And everybody in healthcare moves fast when they see these. So the Da Vinci robot's a great one. IBM Watson was another great one. And those two were kind of more on the end of, uh, you know, hype over substance. And so, you know, people in healthcare get burned and they you know are skeptical of all these things. But you know, probably a, my favorite example of this, which is not tech related and was not hype, was urgent care. Urgent care was this thing that, you know, what, 25 years ago, there was very few urgent cares uh, around the U.S. And, you know, my favorite stat is uh, since the early 1990s, we've seen about 9,000 urgent care centers and 14,000 Starbucks. And that means you've got brick and mortar healthcare growing at the rate you know, 70% of the rate of consumer coffee. And that's just, it's bananas. Um, it's its one of these things that people, you know, say fast, rapid change is impossible in healthcare. I just don't buy it. I mean, that is systemic level change. And now urgent care is like, you know, every major health system in the U.S. has one. And it was because, you know, they were draining their EDs and, and taking all the profit. And so they looked around and said, these, these things could put us out of business and we've got to, we're losing patient flow. We've got to have an associated urgent care. So we do see people move when they get scared. And, you know, IBM Watson and the Da Vinci robot, they, they're all the same thing. They're all examples of narratives and narratives drive everything. Storytelling yeah. is everything in, in, in humans. Um, and we've seen the same thing with Tesla and the electric car. Once Elon built enough of a narrative that electric cars were going to be a thing, all the other big players started getting into it. Same thing with autonomous vehicles. And, you know, the car industry is very, very backwards uh, in the same way that uh, healthcare is in some ways. And so I think that more people need to be thinking about, you know, can't it, the nature of these is it's hard to create, but there's a, there are opportunities to create kind of existential narratives that could put people, uh, could, could really change the model, and then they become self-fulfilling. Uh, you know, the, the area that I think is really interesting right now is these direct-to-consumer companies, uh, Hims, Roman, uh, Nurex. They, uh, you know, I, I think Hims went zero to 100 million in revenue in their first year. And a lot of physicians say, well, it's not real healthcare and it's a pill mill and it's a toy and it's not safe for patients. And it's true. But, you know, if you look throughout technology, you know, this has always been the case. People thought Snapchat was a toy and Netflix was a toy and Facebook was a toy. And uh, 
these things end up being, uh, or that they're they're not relevant to the mass market. So if nobody thought Uber was going to be relevant to the mass market, it it this is the the early adopter curve in play, um, and in healthcare, the added detail is like we talked about earlier. You know, Hims is the best example of this. They said, let's take the safest, simplest application, let's apply it to people who will want a digital format, and then let's make it work, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But if you look at Roman now, they're starting to look at weight loss and smoking sensation and, and other things like this. And so you can see how the model might grow and broaden and address more serious and complex things. Um, and that narrative is scary. And I think that's why a lot of docs and regulators and otherwise are watching this so carefully because they know that fear comes from in the bottom of my heart, I know I can. I know it can be disruptive. So, speaking of of narratives, there's three narratives, including direct to consumer, that I've noticed more hyped up than others in terms of solutions to the problems that we've been talking about. Um, one is going after self insured employers because of the aligned incentives there to save cost, improve care efficiency, improve quality of care. The second one is these full stack virtual providers with almost like a digital hospital where everything is kind of contained in one system for them to have control. And then the third is the direct to consumer model that you just spoke about. Do you think that these are the Hail Marys that are going to be the solutions to some of the problems that we've been speaking about? Are there challenges people aren't thinking about with these three narratives? Those are three that I'm incredibly, uh, I'm incredibly excited about, particularly full stack care uh, or vertically integrated models. Uh, you know, I think for a bunch of reasons we got into provider behavior is is difficult to change, and so getting providers and and the workflow in health systems is difficult to change. I would love to see some health systems work directly with startups to say. You know, how do we take your care model and your processes and apply it to our patients? Uh, I'm not sure anyone will do it, but, it, you know, as a small experiment on a small part of the business, I think it would make a lot of sense. The other one that I'm very excited about would be, I, so I think if you learn from a company like Verta Health, what they did really well is they just took time early on to gather evidence. Uh, you know, in their case, that the ketogenic diet could have uh, some really interesting and beneficial results for for diabetic patients. I would love to see more startups do this design and intervention. I think it's very hard to sell technology point solutions. So if you imagine taking a you know a piece of technology, which in their case was an app, uh, and pairing it with a, an intervention and clinically and rigorously validating this. Uh, if you have the time to do it, and from a startup perspective, that means you got to keep your burn very low, as low as you can, and just gathering some data. It doesn't necessarily need to be an RCT, uh, but gathering that data and then using it to get those early contracts and building on that, um, I think that's a really interesting model. You know, what Omada did, which is sort of relevant and related, was that they commercialized what uh, I think it was CMMI had developed around the diabetes prevention plan. So they took something that existed in literature and and had existed. And this, you know, gets a problem. It's like in healthcare, it's what seventeen years from the time uh, uh, an intervention is is developed to in practice. I think some of these models 
can speed up that that period uh, by seizing on that's a huge entrepreneurship opportunity. You take uh, a protocol that's well rigorously validated and you build on top of it and you start selling that and you say, hey, we're going to get this into practice sooner rather than later. Um, and both those companies, their success, as you mentioned, came more on the self-insured employer side uh, and and then eventually on the, the insurer side. So, Well, I, I think uh, there are definitely very interesting solutions to a lot of the uh, existing problems with chronic disease management. But one of the things I want to look at and, and, and talk about, because it's relevant to what you guys are building at CureEye, is is, you know, what's, what does the future look like? I mean, we're talking about existing models with full stack developers that still have a human interface. So, I mean, the scalability of that is somewhat limited by having a clinician or a health coach or whatever it may be. Um, but potentially some of this work can be done uh, using artificial intelligence or a, a machine learning system. And uh, I'm just curious about sort of what your uh, version of the future of healthcare looks like, or you know, what uh, what are the opportunities and what uh, that you guys are exploring with uh, Curie? Obviously, all the things I've talked about are problems that I'm well aware of, and so I, I've been trying to solve. And you know, I I've had a rapid learning curve in the healthcare industry about over the last four or so years ago. So I like to tell people, four years ago, I never had health insurance, let alone you know, knew the first thing about health care. I remember the first time I started talking to folks trying to learn about the space, I, you know, had to, you know, I thought health insurance worked like mutual insurance. I thought, you know, I had no idea how complex it was. And one of the things I learned really early on that inspired me to kind of go after, uh, go after this space and realize it was an opportunity for some of my skills was, I remember seeing a study that showed that roughly nine out of 10 clinical guidelines or best practices didn't have an RCT behind them. You know, that was just a scary fact to me. I was like, mm -hmm. well, there's got to be a way to use data to help drive better decision-making in healthcare. I mean, it's happened everywhere. What, you know, whether it's baseball or financial services, data-driven decision-making is becoming the thing and it's undeniably showed better results. And I started learning more and more about this space. And eventually I really started asking myself the same question you just asked, which is what, what does the world need to look like uh, in 20 years? And how do we work backwards from that? And if I think about what the world's going to look like in 20 years, it's, it's 7 billion people have to have access to the world's best healthcare, right? It's got to be, well, it's going to be more than 7 billion at that point, but we're, we're probably not even at a percent of that. You know, we have such poor access across the system globally, and we need to find a way to take our physicians that we have and scale them massively. And so we realized like you had to, you have to build tools that can take one physician and make them a hundred or a thousand times more effective and efficient than they are today. If you really want to reach 7 billion people. And all of those facts kind of led us to believe that a, a dynamic AI system could help physician and help them solve this kind of fundamental access problem and really give, you know, if you think of healthcare as a universal right, this is, this is the only way we're going to give it to grant that right to, to everybody in the world. Um, 
And we started with that backdrop. We just kind of said, okay, we, we take it at, on fact that we need to reach 7 billion people. How do we solve this problem? And so early on in our early days, we weren't necessarily looking to reinvent the wheel. We said, hey, how do we work with the existing infrastructure in the healthcare system today and start to scale and work with them so that um, you know we can actually accomplish this goal over time? And what we realized was you kind of had to uh, for a lot of the reasons we've talked about today. Um, and there's some huge advantages in that is, you know, you can take the care models that exist today and the knowledge that the physicians have that you change the way they practice. Um, and inherently, this has to happen, right? If you look at the way a software developer writes code today versus 20 years ago, it's changed. If you look at the way that uh, a lawyer practices versus 20 years ago, it's changed less, but we're starting to see technology even change that. Uh, if you look at almost any profession, it, you know, the way they do their thing has to change. And in, in healthcare, the only way we've really seen it is EMRs, and they've been a disaster for a whole different set of reasons. But the way I see it is you've got to change the way that uh, you know, a physician practices. So that means in our case, no EMRs. You've got to have support staff that they can leverage. One of my observations was in engineering, you know, we take one software engineer and we put them on a team that really multiplies their knowledge and reach. But this doesn't exist in healthcare. You know, you have one patient, one physician, with the exception of maybe the resident physician sort of relationship in a hospital. Outside of that, there's very little of this. Um, and then on top of that, it comes with components of decision support and AI to help them be more efficient. And all of this working towards a world where everybody in the world has really great access to healthcare. Um, and so that's kind of the framework that we started with. It's like, what does it look like? Um, what we've been working towards today and what, you know, kind of to concretely put it all together is uh, we're trying to build a, a, a free version of primary care, to, to put it bluntly. Um, we think that every patient in the U.S. and certainly in the world should have access to a doctor on their phone for free. Why? Uh, because primary care is the biggest lever that we have to drive changes downstream in the healthcare system. So if you look at the cost of providing primary care, it's about five to 10% of costs system-wide, but it drives you know, 80, 90% of the care costs. And so when you have a lever like that, you say the high value thing is not the, the care itself. The high value thing is the, the decisions we drive. The low value thing is the care itself. And you know, the analogy in the financial services world is if you look at a company like Robinhood, they said the low value thing is commission on trade. So we're going to give away trades for free, but we're going to own the relationship with the user and we're going to get their account onto our platform and we're going to go from there. Um, and so that's what we've been building. And we're starting with a virtual only model because we think that, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons that I can get into, but the reality is, is again, if you go back to what a system has to look like for 7 billion people, there's not enough doctors, there's not enough real estate, there's not enough anything to make it work if you have inpatient care, or sorry, if you have uh, brick and mortar care. And I think that's something that people don't acknowledge enough. It's like they look at the limitations of the system today and say, well, it won't work with virtual only care. 
The reality is, is it won't work with brick and mortar care. It just won't. The, you know, the system is completely broken. And if we don't drive it to a virtual only care, we're going to be screwed. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to continue to have a world where nobody, uh, you know, where people get sicker and sicker. Uh, there, we only respond when they're sick. And, you know, it's so bad that patients now think of the healthcare system as something that they only go to when they're sick. Um, and costs are incredibly high. So we started with a virtual only model. Uh, you know, if I look in the future, I think that most outpatient cares that exist today probably shouldn't exist. You have to find ways to virtualize all of that care. So all of the testing, all of the sensors that are being developed can help virtualize these things. Um, and most of it needs to be driven by AI and software. Um, so I think of it as, you know, the analogy I always make is like healthcare is a service. It probably needs to become more of a good. So whatever a unit of healthcare is, we need to make it repeatable. Now that is going to create a lot of allergic reactions that people say, well, you can't think of it like that. Uh, and I just go back to, you almost have to. Uh, one of the things Bill, I heard Bill Gates speak about healthcare one time, and he said, you know, the problem with healthcare is that healthcare will always take up more and more of, there's basically unlimited demand for healthcare. So we'll always take up more of our societal costs. Why? Because, you know, as people live longer, that you are fighting against nature. You know, if you're 100 years old or life expectancy is 100 years instead of 77, you're fighting against nature. There's diminishing returns on every dollar you spend keeping someone alive for longer and longer. That's just how physics works. Biology mm -hmm. works that way. And so no matter what, we're always going to be dealing with the challenge of keeping people alive longer, and it's going to be more and more expensive. And so we have to find ways to dramatically lower the cost of an individual unit of healthcare to be able to continue to meet that demand. You know, these are one of the, these are some of the things I'm thinking about in terms of what does the future of healthcare look like and how do we get there? You know, Neil, we had a great episode with you. We're really grateful that you were able to come on and talk to us about the challenges that these startups are facing, the different players involved. We got into some of the solutions, which were, were really incredible. And, and then hearing what you're working on personally of creating this primary care model, which you're totally right. The trickle-down cost is, is incredible if we don't get that right. So that's an amazing place to start. Any, any advice that you would give to young entrepreneurs, um, whether they're software engineers or clinicians or people that are looking to change the system to think more in a transformative mindset as opposed to an incremental mindset? You know, the work that you've done, what advice would you give to them? I would always start with a piece of advice that you should work backwards. So you got to envision what the system has to look like, and then you've got to solve, solve it like a puzzle to get there. The problem is we have far too much thinking forwards in healthcare, which is what does it look like today and what little niche can I carve out and what can I do and then go from there. And, and that's led to these incremental solutions. Imagine the future, work backwards from it and say, how do I get there given the constraints on the system today? But it's a much better way to get to these longer term goals.